Welcome old listeners, welcome new listeners to the Into the Wilderness podcast. We have a very, very special guest for you today. We've got Ivan Carter on. We've been trying to get hold of him for months. We've been promising him for months as well. Yeah, we have. Uh, he's an extraordinarily busy man and for very good reasons. Yeah, in fact, uh, I think just a few days after we had the conversation with him uh, over Skype, he was flying out to the west coast of Africa somewhere, um, traveling up. I think he was going to be doing some stuff in the mountains with gorillas again. It's uh, If you don't know who he is... Go and check out his Facebook page, Ivan Carter. He's also got a website. Just Google Ivan Carter. You'll you'll come up with that. Um, he's got a program which isn't out here, but you but can for watch our, the trailers. Our, our American listeners, yes, out, outdoors channel, Carter's War. From what I can see, it looks like a brilliant series, all exploring uh, animal and human conflicts and the reasons for them and how they can be resolved. Which is at the core of everything that that Ivan Carter talks about. He discusses very articulately how we can possibly solve some of the, the major issues that we have with, with wildlife and wildlife conflicts in the world right now. Obviously, we talk about ivory. We talk about rhino horn. We talk about the bushmeat trade. We talk about how hunting is an essential part to ensure that certain species in certain places in Africa and the rest of the world survive and examples of how there have been great successes. But equally and very pragmatically, he talks about how hunting isn't always the right solution, no. but that in the grand picture, it needs to be part of this greater management plan for the wildlife's greater benefit. If you're unsure, if, if you're slightly unsure about what's going on in Africa, conservation, the conflicts that's going on, after you listen to this podcast, you should understand everything that's going on, the, the problems and the solutions and the reasons behind why we have to do some of the things yeah, we, that we uh, do. And it is, yeah, I was going to say, and if you are not sold on the reason behind why we need hunting at this moment in time in some parts of Africa for conservation, then there is no hope for you. You won't understand. You're, you're obviously refusing to listen. Yeah. And he, he backs it up with facts. Yeah. And that is, that is really, really important. Um, it is one of those podcasts that if you listen and you think, wow, you know, I have a, a better understanding of my position and the, the position of countries and other people around the world and what we need to do to make sure that we protect wildlife, then you need to share this. You need to share this with people mm -hmm. who maybe don't, that you know don't understand it or don't understand those conflicts, and more importantly, think that hunting is just solely uh, a bad thing and is the, the actions that result in the de demise of species, which couldn't be further from the truth. So it, if you listen to this and you think that that has answered all those questions, share it with those people because it is one of those podcasts that I, I think will get a lot of people thinking and a lot of people who otherwise thought that what hunters do is just cruel, it might actually change their mind. It might. And you can help out. You, We discuss later on the podcast how you can actually be involved and help the people doing conservation across across Africa and the world as well. Ivan Carter explains really well what these uh, organizations and foundations are doing mm -hmm. uh, to help out. Or alternatively, you can always visit our new shop. We've got a new shop and we'll be giving so, uh, some of our profits away to conservation efforts around the world as well. We will indeed. 
uh, yeah, it's a it's a great podcast. We're not going to keep you any longer because no, we want to get straight. It's, it's pretty two, long. It's two hours long, and yeah, l- try and listen to it in one go if you can because yeah. it's it's such a fascinating. To be podcast. honest, I think I think it's the kind of podcast that you'll want to revisit. In fact, yeah. I'm going to be listening to it again myself just to try and take a little bit more from what Ivan Carter had to say. And he says things in there which you need to add to your arsenal if you're trying to defend what hunters do or, or defend why certain things go on. Ivan's got the the answers to that. Yep, he does. And I, I think just taking away some of the, the points that you're away to hear is a big point I found anyway, is condemning illegal activity by hunters or, or, bad, unethical, or bad, uh, unethical bad practices and that's something we should all be doing but we'll talk about a little bit more after we, you've listened to him we absolutely will now we're not going to be um telling you right now who won the, the competition for the coldwell front shooting rest and the reason for that is that we are away in norway we'll be, as, we'll, we'll as be driving this as this podcast out. goes out we are currently driving and you'll be able to follow all of our adventures because we we're going to be doing loads of live stuff on facebook and you'll be able to follow our adventures in norway on facebook and instagram uh, yeah just yeah. check it out we'll also be writing blogs on the website the when we can uh on the pacebrothers.com yeah, so because of all of that, we've had to record this podcast, uh, the intros, outros, two weeks before it's actually going out. So this, there was still two weeks for people to enter. So what we're going to do is we will have worked out, uh, well, randomly selected uh, the people who have entered, which we'd already had loads by this point of recording this, and we will put it on social media. And because we are unable to tell you the name of the person on the podcast, we will actually, on this occasion, actually contact the person as well. Yep. So check out our social media feeds. You will find out who won the Coldwell Front Shooting Rest. And in this podcast, as always, there is a brand new prize, and it's really cool. But to find out about that, you need to listen to the show, and we will tell you at the end what it is and how you can enter. This podcast is supported and brought to you by the Scottish Association for Country Sports. We talk about them every two weeks, because without them, we wouldn't be able to bring you this podcast. If you don't know about them, Google them, them, check them out on Facebook. Ivan, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, we've been in uh, conversations for a couple of months. You've been all around the world, literally all around the world, I think, since we first started speaking. So it is a great pleasure to have you on our podcast today. Well, Byron, I really appreciate the opportunity. And um, thank you so much for everything that you do on the front line to, to educate and, and help the general public understand um, you know, what we all stand for. Yeah, and we're, we're going to get into that in, in great detail what I want to start with, for those people who have seen the name, you've, you know, you've got a lot of followers on uh, social media. So between what you post and what people share of what you post, I think a lot of our listeners will be aware of Ivan Carter, but not necessarily understand where you started and where you came from. So if you could tell me a little bit about your life story. I know you, you spent a lot of time as a professional hunter and then get through to kind of where you are today. And then we'll dig into that a bit deeper. You know, Byron, I always say that, you know, having a a profession in the field, be it hunting, be it guiding, it's a lifestyle. It's not just a job. It's not a nine to five. You've got to be out there. You've got to be literally living the lifestyle. And so, you know, the people that are in it for 20, 30 years, um, this is my my 28th year of being in the field. Um, Generally, it's a lifelong interest. And that's the way it was for me. You know, as a little kid, I was collecting butterflies. I was collecting birds' eggs. I was you know, chasing and trying to catch anything that was chaseable and catchable. And, um, 
you know, I did falconry for 10, 15 years. And, and, you know, as I look back to some of the old school letters, I used to write back to my mother from boarding school, you know, it, it, you know, everything in those letters was about the birds that I've seen, what my hawk has done, you know, what my, my English setter has done, you know, that my life did not revolve around the classroom. Let me put it that way. So, um, yeah, I, I was interested in the outdoors, interested in the pursuit of, of wild places and wild game, you know, basically all my life. Um, left school, joined a wildlife orphanage where I got very heavily involved in the rearing and rehabilitation of, of, of sick and injured wild animals. Did a lot in that, in that field as far as, you know, anti-poaching research, you know, in those days, you know, that, that's goodness me, that, that's nearly 30 years ago. So, you know, it, things were very different then. We had rhinos on the property. I got, got to interact with those a lot. Um, I actually, you know, would go to bed at night as, as a young person in my late teens, you know, with, with serval cats in my bed, a warthog under the bed. You know, it, it, it really was a pretty unique opportunity working for that wildlife orphanage. Um, that led me into the guiding field where I started to guide photographic trips and, and hunting trips and canoeing trips. And, um, you know, in those days, you know, you, you pretty much put loose and fancy free. And so, you know, the best way that I used to get into those opportunities was offered to work for free. And I just loved being out there. Money was totally not important to me. I wish we could say that through the whole of our lives, but, um, you know, th things change. And, um, you know, I, I used to spend 25 or 30 days a month literally in the field. And, um, yeah, a lot of my friends will tell you in those days I was totally bush happy. That's, that's kind of bush crazy for those who don't know. And <laughs> I probably was. You know, I, I spent those, certainly the whole of my 20s, building up a business that, that took people into wild and remote places and mobile tented camps. Um, we, we used to have a lot of clientele in those days. And, um, you know, concurrently, I was doing a lot of big game hunting. At the same time, you know, Zimbabwe was during its kind of meltdown years, if you will, um, within the Mugabe regime, the um, you know, farm takeovers had started, the, the riots had started in, in Harare. And so as such, the, the photographic tourism element coming into Zimbabwe just evaporated because it became a, you know, a, a, you know to, the, to the average traveler, it wasn't a destination they wanted to contend with because of the political, you know, strife that was going on. Yeah, sure. um, what ended up happening through that is, you know, out of every negative comes opportunity. And it, it meant that it kind of pushed me into guiding and hunting all over Africa. And um, so I ended up leading trips on both photographic photographic safaris and, you know, general interest birding safaris through, you know, a lot of different parts of Africa. I started hunting in different parts of Africa and still maintaining a good, a good presence in Zimbabwe. But, you know, it became more and more difficult to convince people that it was okay. And so what ended up happening through all of that, um, you know, one one thing leads to another. I started videoing hunts. I started videoing safaris and, um, you know, caught the eye of, of Craig Boddington, who um, was at that point making a series of hunting DVDs on various big game species. Um, we partnered with Craig and Safari Classics. I, I partnered with them to create a, 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 a DVD series. Um, and, you know, that that's how things went for a while, Pro, you know, creating outdoor television, um, creating awareness to, you know, my slogan became conservation through hunting. And my goal was to create an awareness. You know, we're thinking back now eight or nine years where, um, you know, in those days, hunting was a lot more, it was on the decline as far as, as public perception, but it was a lot more accepted than it is today. And so 
we really made a strong push to make people understand the value of hunting. And I coined the phrase conservation through hunting was our kind of byline of, you know, I wanted the Ivan Carter name to be associated with conservation through hunting, the word conservation coming before the word hunting, um, because that's how I believe that it, it actually it actually fits. And, you know, Byron, what ended up happening through, through again, just, just how life goes. You know, if you took a 60,000 foot view back at the path we've all taken, you could never in a million years write that out. I mean, it's just how things go. And so what ended up happening is through guiding and hunting through all of these countries across Africa, I started to see wildlife in more and more trouble. I started to see, you know, hunting declining, hunters' dollars starting to diminish. I started to see you know, the need for somebody to be out there telling these stories. I found that, you know, when you Google Africa, when you start to look at Africa on the mainstream media, it comes in three parts. You've either got the newsreels, which is bullets, guns, death and drought, and it's all the bad news and something like that's happening all over all over the world at any time, but that seems to be where the news comes from. And so a lot of people thought of Africa as this drought-stricken, war-torn place. Um, you start looking at Nat Geo and Discovery and you see the cheetahs in the sunset and the, you know, the lions roaring with the steam on their breath in Botswana and, and all of that beautiful stuff. And then you look at History Channel and you start to see the tribal stuff again, very beautiful tribal people with deep and rich culture. But there's not a single program out there that is really getting into the issues where the human element and the wildlife element are at odds. You know, everybody's wanting to have one of those three stories. Nobody's wanting to talk about where the Maasai meet the lion. No one wants to talk about where the rhino poacher meets the rhino. No one wants to talk about the giant growth of the, of the human population in Africa that is pushing more and more people onto the breadline. And in turn, as more people hit the breadline, more of them are looking to the wildlife reserves as a source of food rather than an, an untouchable reserve. And so you know, what I realized is that if, if nobody else was going to tell those stories, I needed to be the one to tell those stories. So just as a matter of course, and, and in, the, in the timing of things, you know, there's not enough time to do everything. I always joke and say, <laughs> I'd like to have a 500-day year and know that I'm going to live to 150 because then at least I might achieve some of the things I want to do, you know. Yeah. Um, and so what, what ended up happening is, um, yeah, I took on this project to get out there and tell these stories. Um, Outdoor Channel is is the owner of this project, and you know uh, we've is, had a very successful. Sorry, Ivan. This is for for those people listening. You're talking about Car- Car- the Carter's War series. Yes, absolutely. The Carter's War series. We have a website which is Carter'sWar.com. Um, you know my Facebook page, which is Ivan Carter's Africa. Um, you know we go through a lot of these issues. We get into some pretty heated discussions, some pretty interesting discussions. But one of the things I won't compromise. Byron, is the truth on the front line of what's really happening with our wildlife. You know, not every area is best suited to hunting. Not every area is best suited to photographic. My goal is to make the general public around the world understand that if wildlife has value, no matter how we put that value on it, then it's got a much more secure future. And so anyway, getting back to kind of the historical part of it, we we embarked on season one of Carter's War. Um, I partnered with Brandon Shockey. I subsequently left um, Safari Classics. Um, they're a fantastic production company. Um, they do they do a great job of of producing, you know, basically hunting TV for Africa, mm-hmm. um, and that that became a model of of something that I, I had moved on from. So we created this whole new model. And so Byron Yao today, you know, bringing us up to the present, 
almost every waking hour is, is to do with something to do with these conflicts, creating the stories around them, creating an engaging episode around them. And um, yeah, I, I still spend a lot of time in the field do, doing those trips and getting these stories. It's a very different life to guiding one guy. Now I have a whole film crew where we, we trying to get into the heart of these issues. So yeah, uh, it's been an interesting journey to say the least, but still it's the, the, the greatest fascination of all is, is for me being out there in the field you know, understanding the the wildlife dynamics, what leads to what, how it all fits together. And, you know, the more you learn about that stuff, the less you feel you know. Mm. The less you know, the more you want to learn. It's kind <laughs> of a circle, you know. I want to get a, a, maybe one or two anecdotes from the series to entice people into looking it up and watching it. It's slightly difficult in this country uh, to, to get hold of it, but... Uh... I think there are there are some ways that you can download. Uh, I, well, it, I we we did share the the trailer. We before. did share the trailer, yeah. But I, what I wanted to ask you about before we 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 get into the actual the, the guts of the series and the kind of conflicts that you are encountering, is I, I'm a, I have for a long time been a big fan of Branlon Shockey's work as yeah. as, as a, a director and a, a man behind the camera and and the brains primarily behind the way that Uncharted looks, which is obviously uh, his father's series. What was it like to work with, with Brandon? We haven't been lucky enough to have him on the podcast yet, but I, I, will, be, uh, I will be asking him at some point. You know, Brandon is a great, great guy. He's, he's you know, he, he can look at something and all of a sudden out of the left field comes this incredible way of telling that story. You know, but one of the things that I'm very aware of is, because my whole life has been has been on the African continent, totally immersed in African wildlife and African issues, very often things that are very obvious to me, Bran will say, no, that's not obvious. We need to tell this story in a simpler fashion. You understand it, but will the audience understand it? And so if you look at an episode of Carter's War, and again, it's, um, you know, carterswar.com does a lot of going into behind the scenes, you know, telling people how we've done that, how, you know, what, what we've done. And you realize that in order for us to tell a, a realistic crocodile story, we have to be on the Zambezi River. Mm -hmm. We have to talk to victims. We have to have the audience empathize with the victim, have the audience empathize, empathize with the crocodile, and finally start to present a few solutions. And so what we've done with every episode is Bran has really worked his magic into, into you know, how to tell those stories in a compelling way that's understandable emotionally engaging because Byron you know one of the bottom lines with conservation is everybody on the front line requires support and what's the best way to get them that support and the best way to do that is to have somebody like Brandon helping us to tell a story that gets emotional engagement mm -hmm. if people are emotionally engaged they're likely to say yes you know what I want to make a difference to this you know how do you raise a million dollars you, you knock on a bunch of doors and try and get someone to write you a check. You may never find that guy. But touching a million people in a way that they're going to send you five bucks each, all of a sudden you've got $5 million. And so Bran, is he, he's way smarter than me, 10 times smarter than me. Um, so I think he has to be very patient when he's working with me. And he types slowly because I don't read fast. So, you know. <laughs> but he's, he's no, a fantastic guy. He's really got his heart very much in the right place. We both are such strong believers in this. It, this is so much more than just, you know, it, it's so much more than just entertainment for us. And, you know, that's, that's obvious when you see the work that Brand puts into it. So, yeah, great guy, very hardworking and an unbelievable talent to work with. 
The uh, I was wondering if you could give us uh, one or maybe two examples of the kind of conflicts and what I would be good to focus on from a listener's point of view is is that human conflict and why that really is one of the big primary issues and why you have to make sure that people are part of the the solution for wildlife management because if you don't have if the the people the native people in whatever country we're talking in around the world don't have a vested interest in protecting the wildlife the bottom line in the long term is that it just disappears no that's that's absolutely true and so when we talk of human wildlife conflict to give you an idea of some of the things that we've done stories on, obviously the rhino issue is a huge issue. Yeah. It's the conflict between the protectors of rhinos and the poachers of rhinos. And out of that comes all kinds of questions. Should you dehorn or not? I mean, we've just done an episode on that. Should, you, should there be a legal trade in rhino horn? Personally, from my personal perspective, you know, without the legal trade, the rhino are doomed. You know, there's never been a commodity on the planet where restricting reducing or eliminating the supply has done anything to the price except send it up. Mm-hmm. And so if you increase the price on something, all you do is increase the, the risk that people are prepared to, to go to to get that valuable commodity. So we go into those kind of issues. We do a lot on bushmeat. You know, Byron, what a lot of people don't realize in the first world is that, you know, there's a lot of people living on the breadline who literally have got, you know, 10 or 12 kids who they're trying to feed. And when they say they don't have money, I mean, they truly don't have money. You know, in the first world, when you say you don't have money, it means you may have to, you know, ax your, your country club membership. Um, you know, the reality in Africa, when you don't have money, you don't have a way to feed your kids. And any one of us living on the edge of a national park, watching our kids starve, would be hopping over that boundary and, and poaching animals to feed, our, to feed, our, feed our families. And so, you know, identifying those problems, identifying some of the solutions, um, you know, we did a, an episode on man-eating crocodiles where um, truly the crocodiles are eating people because the people have overfished the area. They've displaced all the wildlife. So there's very little else for the crocodiles to eat except the people. Mm. So once you start looking at it from the crocodile's perspective, the crocs have got to eat too. All that's there are people. So unfortunately, in the future, it doesn't look like there's room for the crocs because Nobody's going to vote for a big scaly reptile in favor of a, of a young girl, you know. And so it, it really is a lot of very, very painful issues to see, very painful issues to research. I mean, we've just got back from the Congo and we're going to be doing an episode there on um, the, the, the use of baby chimps um, for the live animal trade. Wow. And so wealthy people from, from the east are, are buying these baby chimps. The, the family bond, I mean, a chimpanzee is 98% the same DNA as you and I. So they're very, very, very intelligent. And the family bond is so strong that to get a baby chimp for sale usually results in the mother being killed or sometimes the whole family being killed. There's stories out there of the only way they can get these little things off their mother is to set the mother on fire. Wow. And so when you start to hear that kind of story, not one of our listeners knows that that goes on. And so... We have this huge responsibility on our program to A, make them understand it, B, make them identify with the people that are on the front line trying to solve it, and C, get emotionally involved to the degree that they're going to support those people on the front line. Because great conservation will happen when these, these dedicated conservationists on the front line, literally with the heart of a lion and fire in their eyes, have the support of the world. And it doesn't mean you've got to send 10,000 pounds. It just means that, you know, you send one or two pounds, if you're one of two million people that did that, 
we can change the way we do conservation. We really can. When I uh, was speaking to you a few months back, when we sort of first started conversing, you were just in the, the process of starting an Asian tour of Carter's War and bringing it to parts of the world which might not be used to having that kind of information in front of them in a form that they can actually take in. Talk me through that tour, what it was like, what your interactions were like with the media over there and how uh, receptive they were to the messages that you were trying to get across. Because we all know that uh, a lot of the, the, the poaching issues, especially if we're talking about uh, rhino horn, stem from Asian markets and demand. You know, Byron, I'm going to start off kind of on a little bit of a tangent here and say rhino horn in Asia is like diamonds in the first world. Um, you know, we all know that you can, you can track where a diamond came from. How many people truly walk into a diamond shop today, whether it's your wife, girlfriend, whatever, my wife, girlfriend, whatever, anybody in the first world, we've all seen blood diamond. We all know that diamonds are trackable. How many people track a diamond before they, before they actually buy it? No. Whether they know that that came from Zimbabwe or, you know, where there was a huge amount of bloodshed to get it or the Congo, or any of these conflict diamonds, or whether it came from somewhere like Namibia, perfectly stable, perfectly above board. We don't do that. You know why? Because it's, we're thousands of miles away from where that problem exists. And diamonds are too valuable. The marketing campaigns and the diamond distribution, distribution and dealerships are, are too powerful. So, you know, a blind eye is turned. How different is that to an Asian person using some rhino horn in a drink to celebrate the closure of a big business deal? They're so far away from the problem, they don't care. They don't ask, where did this horn come from? Um, and then getting to your question, Byron, you know, that was just a little, a little sidetrack there, but it, it hopefully helps people to understand that, you know, the rhino horn has been a part of a culture in Asia for, for literally hundreds and hundreds of years. We're not going to eliminate that in one step. Mm. Um, you know, our grandparents were proudly wearing leopard skin coats to functions in London. Um, you know, it's taken a whole generation for that to not be cool. And so it's going to take a generation in, in Asia, in my opinion, to, um, to see it. Yeah, I went to, to seven different Asian countries. Um, as of late May, the episodes have been running there. And one of the reasons I did that, Byron, was largely because we all say somebody needs to go to Asia and tell the story. Well, I'm not going to say that. I'll be that somebody so that I can see firsthand what we're up against. And, you know, really when you look at it, it's so deep in the culture. People are absolutely horrified on the street when they see what's actually going on. I mean, the Singapore Zoo, when you walk around that zoo, there's so much that they're doing to create awareness of what's going on on the front line, whether it's cockatoo smuggling, whether it's rhino horn, whether it's ivory. You know, then you, you get to these other countries. And what's interesting is that the more traditional the country, the, the greater the, the use of these kind of animal products. And of course, China being the, the biggest country and actually in some ways the least developed from a perspective of the users and the education of the users. And um, yeah, at the end of this whole tour that I thought was really successful, Byron, um, you know, I saw more people than, than I ever thought could, could exist in a big city. Hmm. It made me realize how big an undertaking it would be to educate you know, these, these tens of millions of kids that are going through the school system there every year. But what really, really brought it home to me was I was flying out of Gangju, China. And at the departure gate, there was what we would expect to see as a normal duty-free shop full of trinkets, except it was an ivory shop. <laughs> and 
when you look at the ivory carvings that were for sale, some of those, when I spoke to the, I, I pretended I was a buyer. When, when we spoke to the, the die there, I mean, absolutely spectacularly beautiful. Some of them had taken 12 years to carve, and they're sitting there for, you know, 20,000 US dollars. <laughs> that's not something that's just a piece of art or a trinket. It's a whole lifestyle. It's a whole culture. It's as deep as the old, you know, double gun engravers and, and double gun companies. Yeah. You know, the, the, the Holland and Holland of ivory carving still exists today, and everybody wants one of their carvings. And so what would it take for us to eliminate the double gun trade um, or to eliminate, you know, driven pheasant shooting is the same thing as what it would take to eliminate, you know, rhino horn. And, you know, at the, at the end of the day, we have to accept that there's a, there's a certain cultural, cultural, what's the word for it? There, there's a necessity for that product to be in that culture. They, they're not going to say no to it which means that what we have to do on the other side of it is find a way to benefit from the legal trade in those commodities because then Asia goes from being the greatest threat to the species to the greatest, to the greatest asset because there's no one else on the planet that's going to pay the kind of money that the Asians would pay for rhino horn or ivory. And there's a lot of argument that it would perpetuate the market or, or whatever, but in reality... I think that as long as we are saying no to any kind of legal provision for, for ivory and rhino horn, all we're doing is saying, please, go to our competitors. Our competitors are the poachers, and they can get it for you. We're not going to give it to you. And, you know, when you look, Byron, again, a little bit off topic, at the, the, the ivory fire that happened recently in Kenya, yeah, yeah. you know, that's two, $200 million of ivory was burned. Not one single elephant stood up alive again from those ashes. And what kind of statement could Kenya have made if they took that $200 million, if they legally put that ivory onto the market, took the $200 million they could have earned from it, that would have paid the salaries of 38,000 Gamescots. Or it could have paid half of that and bought them 4,000 land cruisers. And so what kind of statement would they have made in the anti-poaching arena if they said, okay, guys, we've just fully equipped and paid for 38,000 Gamescots? You wouldn't be able to, to sneak a rat out of a national park, let alone a rhino horn. Um, and yet, you know, the, the general public and social media and, and, you know, largely uninformed, you know, populace vote in favor of burning, burning the stuff, which is, you know, you're burning a valuable asset that could be used in the war. So anyway, I digress. The, the long and the short of it was very, very interesting tour around Asia. I did seven countries in, in a week. Um, which meant that the jet lag was was you know became very much more it was a lot more than just a word um, and yeah I learned a lot about that culture and a lot about what we are undertaking trying to change that culture and so in the short term there only can be one solution and that is educate the local kids there knowing that it's going to take 40 years before they decision makers and at the same time find a way to utilize that demand in the protection of the supply. Did you find the the people there quite receptive when you actually had them in front of you speaking? Were they willing to listen to you, or did were they their opinions changed after you spoke to them? Yes, very, very willing, very willing. They are, you know, they the kind of people that were were to be honest, the general public around the world. Nobody likes to see an animal in distress, and you know, they they were horrified by what it takes to get a rhino horn. A lot of them thought that the horns fall off. <laughs> a lot of them thought the tusks fall off. And, you know, when you start thinking about it, a lot of Asian deer and, and European deer, the horns and, the, and the, the antlers, if you will, actually fall off. Yeah. And so 
to the uninformed public, um, you know, uh, a lot of people that are out there, we have to understand that when you're talking about, you know, a, a billion and a half people living in Asia, um, there's a lot of people there that have never really considered what it takes for certain industries to to survive and thrive. And and the rhino horn industry, in my opinion, as long as the, the price stays where it is, which is more than 10 times the value of cocaine, um, no amount of outlawing it is going to stop that trade. The thing that's going to stop the trade is one of two things. It's either going to become unfashionable or the rhinos are going to run out. And um, we know it's going to take 40 years to change that culture because it's going to take today's children in 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 decision-making capability to change it. Um, and I, I hate to say it, but I think at current rate, the rhinos are going to be long gone in 40 years' time. I think, uh, just to backtrack a little bit, you, you've encapsulated something which is exactly what we need to have in the, in the mainstream, which is exactly what you are, are trying to do and, and achieving step by step. Is that discussion where we need to look at something from a different point of view? Uh, we have, and I certainly have always been of the view, you know, over the last five or six years, I actually spent um, a little bit of time at John Hume's place, so I know you've been uh, there quite recently, that starting up um, ivory trade, and rhino horn trade for the benefit of the species is the only other option now because what we have done to this point has failed and i thought it, it was quite key what you were um, saying with respect to um, the asian markets is that that is actually a resource they are the only people in the world who are going to pay that kind of money for these two resources and in the short term we our main uh, our goal needs to be that these species survive that they survive to the next generation where maybe you can change their opinion. And in the meantime, we need to find a way that you can actually make it work. And if that means farming rhinos and selling rhino horns, uh, you haven't said it quite in so many words, but I think that, you know, that is possibly a, w a way forward and a way to save the species. And it frustrates me that there is so much negative, uh, so many negative views on that as well as, you know, the ivory trade and the example you gave of them burning the ivory uh, in Kenya was just well, quite you, remarkable. You, you saw it on social media and you would have seen the comments yourself. And there was hundreds and hundreds of, of comments um, on the picture that I saw, people congratulating them on burning it, taking a stance, when actually it was the wrong, the wrong thing to do. It was massively stupid. Could you imagine if they sold that, flood the market, uh, the price drop overnight could, due to that amount of ivory would be quite significant. You know, what, what I, I often... When I get into a discussion with folks like that, I, I boil it down to a few questions. It's not the first ivory fire. Um, there's been ivory fires before. I ask them, have those worked? Because if they'd worked, we wouldn't need to take the stance. My second question is, is it going to make the market go away? Has there ever been, if you remove a huge portion of the supply of any single commodity, be it gold, beef, salmon, even tea leaves, does that in any way affect the market? Does that affect the demand? And the third question that I ask is what happens to the market price of any commodity if you remove some of the supply? Basic any commodity. I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's ball caps or T-shirts. Yeah. Yeah. If it becomes hard to get, the price goes up. You just need to look at 2-2 ammunition in, in America. Yeah. The price is three times what it was when you could get it. So at the end of the day, those three questions are the burning questions I want those people to answer. And the reality is, that, so here's the positive and the negative. In today's world, guys, you, you see two things happening. 
One, there's probably more empathy for wildlife than there's ever been. And the reason for that, I believe, is because there's more people and less wildlife than there's ever been. So people understand that there's a problem they need to save wildlife. It's the first time ever in history as well that everybody's got a voice. Through social media, through Facebook and Twitter, they've got a voice, which means that they are making a snap decision about a comment or, or by commenting pro or negative, they are actually voting with their comment. And so you take a picture of an ivory fire, show it to someone who knows no better. All they know is elephants on trouble and you say good or bad, they go good. Hmm. That's it. Completely understandable. What we've got to do is to try and educate them because you show somebody who knows that lions are at an all-time low across Africa. You show them a picture of a hunter with a lion, good or bad? Bad. Yeah. Immediately. It's the context. Yeah. It's the context. And so if you show them a picture of a live lion and you say, this lion is a lion that lives in a hunting area. It is destined to be killed by a hunter one day. This is an area that's got a population of 500 lions and 10 of them are killed every year. And the killing of this lion pays for anti-poaching. It pays for the maintenance of the perimeter fence. It pays for all of these other species that live there. And if we're not allowed to sell this lion to trophy hunters, this area will go back to cattle. Mm. Should we kill this lion? You may not get everybody saying yes, but you're certainly going to get a lot better response than just a picture of the dead lion with the, with the article, isn't this terrible? Yes, it is. And so, you know, when we, we start, you know, and, and I'm sorry for my very long answers, but it's something that I'm really passionate about getting these messages across. And I think that I know a lot of your listeners are going to be hunters. And I want them to understand that the days of saying, hey, we had a red letter day and there's a picture of, you know, 300 dead pigeons lying there with no other explanation. Those days are gone because that's not getting applauded by the by the, the general public on social media. That is getting used as their biggest weapon against hunters, no matter how good you are at your conservation. And and I think that, you know, for those who are who are listening, who are not hunters, but they're not anti-hunters, you know, what I would ask is that, you know, I'm not asking anybody to pick up a gun and go and shoot something. What I'm asking is for them to understand the effects of the hunter's dollars flowing as a result of the bullet being in the air. And I always say that the moment that the bullet's in the air is that is the, the, the crucial moment. It's the moment where the money changes hands. It's the moment where the hunt is over and the killing starts, no matter how we dress that up. It's the moment you can't, uh, you can't take that bullet back. It's been fired and, and you are going to live with a consequence. You may or may not take a life of an animal with that. And that's a big responsibility. It's also a time which raises the most emotion from the anti-hunters. If the bullets didn't fly, they wouldn't care. It's a time when the bullet is in the air that is so crucial. And yet it's this tiny little bit of time and we allow ourselves to be bullied by the anti-hunting because we put ourselves out there. All we show is what happened when that bullet stopped flying. Yep. We don't show what it took to get that bullet in the air. We don't show the money that changed hands. We don't show the initiatives that are supported. But if the bullets stop flying in Africa, the wildlife goes away. And people say, wow, that is a really violent statement. It's the reality though. Because without that money changing hands, you look right now today, um, I'm not sure of the actual number, and I, I don't want to quote it, but 
many, many, many outfitters in Tanzania are looking to give their concessions back to government. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is because of what they call the Cecil effect. Yep. It's now uncool to go and hunt a lion. And so huge areas of what I call the badlands of Africa, areas where it's not conducive to photographic tourism, where the only financial income is from hunters' dollars, are now going to sit with nobody protecting them, nobody working that land, no presence outside of the tribal people. And every time a lion puts a big toe out of a protected area and even just looks at a goat, it's going to get poisoned or shot or whatever because there's no value. And so all of a sudden, the Cecil effect, if I said, if I just put on social media and we know that it goes to the mainstream, all lion hunting in Africa is closed. If all you know is that lions are in trouble, you're going, wow, great move. That is excellent. Why is that all you know? Is because as hunters, we've done such a bad job historically of educating the general public. Because if you look up lion hunting, if you Google lion hunting right now, you're going to see pages and pages and pages of dead lions and very, very, very little explanation of what happened. Hmm. Um, very little explanation of the benefits to wildlife. And so, you know, if you, Mr. and Mrs. Average, living in a city who don't have, you know, ha have never really been to Africa, you don't really understand the whole thing, how that all works. And you see a picture of a young girl with a dead lion. You go, man, that's part of the problem. I know lions are in trouble. Now when I Google lion hunting, I can see exactly why they're in trouble. Too many people are hunting them. Hmm. Makes complete sense. So how do we change that? We change that with very careful, very well thought out, unemotional education of the general public. And that's a big task. Uh, you, yeah, that's so I, I'm sitting here <laughs> nodding because you are just na every nail on the head. That, in fact, I just last night, about three o'clock this morning, I finished writing my last bat batch of articles for Sporting Rifle magazine that I write for in the UK. And uh, one, is, uh, one of them is on uh, conservation and actually the amount of money that's plowed in, in North America from hunters, which is just the numbers are just staggering. Uh, but my point there, and we talk about this on the podcast all the time, is that as hunters, it needs to be more than that. In, in the modern world, you need to be more than the hunter. You need to be able to debate. You need to be able to articulately put across why you do what you do. You're a conservationist, you're a wildlife manager, and you're a guardian of the landscape around you. But exactly as you said, and we've said it before as well, we have done such a terrible job yeah. at disseminating, disseminating that information over three decades. Uh, and, and the social media aspect of what you said. You can't nowadays put up a picture, uh, a good example in this country is as a fox, of a, a fox that you've blown in half, and that's, that's all you put up. No explanation on the reasons why behind you've done it, um, or anything like that. And people need to either, one, not put the pictures up in the first place, if they think, you know what, this might be taken the wrong way. Uh, or secondly, if they're going to put something up, have an explanation with it. <laughs> and we, we, we pick up people for this. Uh, yeah. I do it less and less because it's, it's not good use of my time because it causes a lot of issues. But we still do it. Pick up for peop uh, on people who do do exactly what you, you've described, but quite often more graphic. Like Daryl <laughs> says, Fox is a good example in the UK eyes bulging out they've shot it because they're they're normally doing something they're protecting yeah. a chicken coop or whatever it may be so there's a good reason for it but they do that and they put a big thumbs up you know a little thumbs Start up sticker on facebook <laughs> maybe a little picture of a gun and how that is viewed by someone who knows nothing about it is disturbing it is disgusting and in actual fact the person who's done that has been completely wrong because they haven't explained they haven't taken the time and they haven't understood that in in today's world 
we need to be the people who provide the education because it was not necessarily our fault and the current generation because I think we are doing a lot more to do it now. But in you know 20 years ago in the previous generations, they didn't do enough. You know, I think that, <clears throat> that that sums it up. It really does. And I think that, you know, we can go a step further and you can say, you know, if you like to be outdoors and if you like the pursuit of wild game, it doesn't matter how many other people like or don't like that. That's fine. But if you like it, you have the responsibility of asking yourself three questions before you post a picture. Number one, is it going to educate someone who knows nothing about what I just did? Number two, is it going to inflame or provide ammunition to people trying to shut what I love doing down? And number four, on the bigger picture, later on, further down the road, will I be adding to the anti-hunting or will I be adding to the education of non-hunters? And if you can answer those three questions before you make a social media post and you can, you can really post it from the perspective of doing the right thing, not just not just, and I'm not saying don't post those pictures, but if you're going to post those very graphic pictures, make sure that it only goes to your friends or people that you know are going to understand it or whatever, because there's always going to be people who post those pictures. If you look at my social media, I post very, very, very few, if not no trophy photos, because there's nothing to be gained from that. That's not the experience. That's not the benefit. That's not, now I'm not going to say that I didn't in the past. Of course I did, but you know what? The most successful initiatives are those that are prepared to change with the times. And the times have changed. And, and we need to accept that the times have changed. And there's a lot of people out there who say, you know what? I don't care what people think. I'm going to post my pictures. It's my right. Good on you. But it'll soon not be your right to even go out into the field if you continue to inflame the anti-hunting you know, fraternities, which are actually very, very powerful today. You know. <clears throat> I think that's some solid advice. I think that is <laughs> yeah. some really solid advice. I think we might even take that little snippet out and put it on uh, put it on Facebook just as a standalone piece for everybody. For, for anyone that's thinking about posting a picture, let's listen to this first. Listen and I'll to, go through the steps. Listen to Ivan Carter. <laughs> yeah. yeah, one, two, three. Uh, I, 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 I want to return to this, but I just want to back, back step a little bit because uh, we, we, we were talking about all manner of things and it was too interesting for me to stop the discussion. I wanted you to talk a little bit more about the efforts that are going in to protect rhinos right now uh, in Africa? Because I know you've just done a lot of it very recently. Uh, for a lot of people around the world, they know what a rhino looks like. They may have been aware in recent years that whenever they see a new picture of a rhino, it doesn't have a horn or its horn looks a bit of a funny shape. But that's all they really know. So maybe you could just enlighten people a little bit about that, Ivan. Absolutely, Byron. You know, desperate times call for desperate measures. What I'm going to do is I'm going to send you a video clip actually for your social media. I'm just writing a note here to myself, um, which you can put um, of, of the dehorning. Now, what dehorning is, is let me back up a little bit. One of the major differences between the rhino horn trade and the ivory trade is that a rhino horn can be quite easily removed with no damage at all to the rhino. Um, one of the reasons that me, as well as a lot of the, the people who are invested in the rhino industry are pro the horn trade, is that people like John Hume are sitting there with, with over a thousand rhinos that are dehorned every couple of years. They pro he has proved that that model, they can generate a couple of pounds a year of horn, which just one rhino can produce enough horn for to pay for his whole security, which means that 
if you were to take a horn and cut it off the rhino, there's very little, very little bad effect to that rhino, unless you only do it to half the rhino in a population, and therefore the most dominant ones will become the ones with horns, and that's bad for the ones that don't have horns. Mm-hmm. But if you if you dehorn the whole population on a place like John Hume's place, on a place like Zululand Rhino Reserve, it's not an inexpensive undertaking. It's a it's an expensive undertaking. However, let's just look at the math, for example. If we can prove that Sorry, let's dream for a minute. If you were allowed to trade rhino horn directly to Asia, if there was a normal government tax on it, just like there is on tobacco or anything else, if you were to be able to trade that directly to Asia, the value of that horn would be enough that any community that owns a viable population of rhinos would be able to go in and on an annual basis, pay a vet team to come and dehorn their rhinos, put that horn onto the market, make more money from their rhino horn than a hundred times the number of cattle and sheep and goats. Now we know what cattle and sheep and goats do to a wildlife environment. They just eat everything and displace all the wildlife. What if more and more communities around Africa would start wanting to have rhinos that got regularly dehorned, the communities themselves, which at the moment, the place which are harboring the poachers now become the protectors of the resource. All of a sudden, there's more rhinos on the planet than ever before because everybody wants to have some rhinos because they want the financial return. Now, when we start looking at it practically, John Hume, his his overriding goal of his whole place, as you know, having been there, is to breed 200 babies. Mm -hmm. He started dehorning purely to take away the, the, the greatest you know, what's the word for temptation for the poacher? Yeah. Knowing that there's a ranch out there with a thousand plus rhinos on it, all with full horns, would be too much temptation. You couldn't protect that. However, if everybody knows, which they do, that all of those rhinos are dehorned regularly and right down to particular individuals getting cut more than others, there's there's 15 minutes of stress for that animal between the time it's darted to the time it stands up again with its horn having been trimmed. And it's what's keeping them safe. And so it's a drastic measure. There's no doubt you're defacing an animal and there's something weird about watching a chainsaw start up in the realm of about to be cutting an animal. Um, you know, chainsaws are just kind of associated with violent stuff just because of our, the, the culture that we live in. And so really when you start looking at it, it's, it's, a, it's evil, but it's a necessary evil. It doesn't need to be evil though. If, let's take an example here. If, if South Africa were to put a tax on the rhino horn and if there was a distributor somewhere in Beijing that were, was distributing legally accessible horn, all of a sudden, as we mentioned earlier before, you've got your Asians, which today are the demon of the rhinos, becoming the darling of the rhinos, because they're going to pay more than anybody else for that horn. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, instead of an NGO saying, hey, well, we're going to send you money to protect your rhinos, they're going to be saying, hey, we're going to send enough money for Community X to purchase themselves 20 rhinos. And therefore, dehorning 10 a year can bring in, you know, 500,000 U.S. dollars into that community. What else on this planet could that community do to raise $500,000 a year? And, you know, when when you start looking at that, why would we not allow that? Why would the general population around the world not vote in favor of that? Why, Why will we look at a sheep and say, oh, well, it's quite fine to share a sheep and take its wool every year, and therefore there's millions of them around the world, why would we not just allow people to farm rhinos and shear their horns off, just like a sheep? 
Now, I'm not saying a rhino is like a sheep. There's a lot of rhino passionate people out there that are going to kill me if I say <laughs> a rhino is like a sheep. But the business model is exactly the same. Yeah, principles the if same. all of a sudden it was completely illegal to, to, to keep a sheep, to breed a sheep, to trade a sheep, very soon you would see a huge amount of sheep wool poaching and the people who kept sheep would diminish because the, the, the value of wool would go up. It would become non-viable to protect those sheep. And so people would start getting rid of them. Just exactly what they're doing as rhino right now. A lot of people just can't afford the security bill. However, if those rhinos had some re financial return, then of course you would end up having you would end up having more rhino on the planet. It, it just it makes complete sense. And so, really, we've got to take off our emotional animal lover hats off. We've got to firmly take them off, and we've got to look at our pragmatic, you know, economist from a pragmatic economist perspective. What is going to work in the current wildlife economy to save the species? And that's what it is. It's going to be open trade where, um, you know, at the moment, if you, you, could, you and I could go to an auction, we could go and we could buy ourselves a rhino. We would probably pay in the region of about probably around about 50,000 US dollars. We could take it home illegally now. We could kill that thing, put the horn onto the market and get back 10 times our money. Doesn't make sense, does it? <laughs> That makes sense. Yeah. So the very animal that produces the horn is worth 10% of the product that it produces. That's yeah. like saying a dead sheep is worth 50 times the wool that you can, I mean, the, the wool from a sheep is worth 50 times, you know, what, what a sheep would be worth, yeah. but you, you have to kill the sheep. It's, it's, it is absolutely crazy. And I was, uh, I was just having a conversation with uh, some of my friends when I was in South Africa last year, and they were telling me of many cases of, farms that had had rhinos because pretty much every farm had, had a rhino at some point that was kind of I, you know, a farmer who had a game farm would love to have a rhino eventually they got rhinos but these days no one wants a rhino because it's like you just said it's a huge not only is it a massive stress on the farmer because they know it's only a matter of time before they're going to lose that rhino because of poaching but to try and curtail that they then have to go and employ somebody or multiple people to try and protect the rhinos they've got. So there's fewer and fewer and fewer places where uh, private individuals are willing to have rhinos. And the exact opposite would be the case if we were taking uh, taking your model as, it, as the way it, to go It forward. just makes so much sense. Why not have an animal that can actually pay for itself? Well, more than. Well, what's, more, um, yeah, and what's really interesting, actually, and we're going to get into this discussion as we start to talk about hunting uh, as, as a, a management practice for protecting wildlife, is that we're not even talking about killing rhino here. No. <laughs> we're just talking about harvesting something that grows back, and yet it still is not palatable. And I find that strange. Here's a very interesting statistic. So a lot of people will tell you that, you know, we, we are, the, the trade in rhino horn will, will stop the poaching. That's not true. Not true at all. And I don't want anybody to think that that's true. It's not going to stop the poaching but it's gonna give some financial return to the investment in Rhino. And if the three of us were going to make an investment today, and let's say we won the British lottery right now today, and there was a few other people who won, so we didn't make a huge, huge, huge amount of money, but we got 5 million pounds, which is very significant. Would we invest in Rhinos? Or would we invest in real estate? <laughs> or would we invest in some kind of livestock? We would certainly not invest in Rhinos. However, if there was a legal trade in rhino and we knew that we could go to the marketplace and we could buy a bunch of rhino and in three years have all of our money back, 
and be making money after that? Now let me ask you the question, would we invest in rhinos? Quite possibly we would. Would it stop people going into Kruger and stealing rhinos? Not at all. So while we're on the phone here, I just quickly Googled how many banks get robbed in the US. <laughs> 5,000 bank robberies are reported to the FBI every year. That's right off Google right now as I'm on the phone with you. What is my point there? My point is anytime there's a commodity of great value, there's going to be somebody that tries to steal it. We just have to accept that. What is the cost of protecting that commodity? As long as the return on the investment in that commodity far outweighs the cost of protecting it, everybody's going to want it. We all want money because we all know that it's okay to protect it. We're going to pay some interest to the bank. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to pay some certain measures to look after our money. And, but we're pretty secure that no one's going to be able to steal it from us. The same thing with rhinos. We're not secure that they're not going to get poached, so we're not going to invest in it. And if we had enough money in return for that investment to make it worthwhile the risk and to, to give us some return on our protection investment, then, of course, we would want to invest in rhinos. And so, you know, I don't want to make this whole thing just about rhinos, but, you know, you look at somebody like John Hume. Let me back up one step. If we were to take a, 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 a Facebook post and get it somehow to go viral and say, do you think people should trade in rhinos or not? I would bet 95% of the people that have the strongest opinions for, I mean, against that, are going to be people that have never invested in a rhino. <laughs> They've never paid for a rhino. They've never paid for the protection of a rhino. They might have sent $5 to save the rhino. I'm not talking about that. You look at a guy like John Hume, who on social media is pretty unpopular. <laughs> and you wonder why, because he truly is the hero of the rhino world. He's put every cent that he's worked so hard in his life to accumulate, and it's a significant amount of money, as you know, into gathering, protecting, and, and propagating the species. How can that be bad? And it comes down again to education. And so, unfortunately, in the, in the world that we live in, everybody's vote counts. So if the three of us go and we vote for or against something, our vote counts exactly the same as John Hume's one vote mm. as a guy who's put tens of millions of pounds worth of money into preserving the species. His vote is exactly the same as my next door neighbor here who's never seen a rhino. Mm. And it only counts as one vote. And so we have to get the general public. And one of the things that we do on Carter's War is, and, you know, if you look at carterswar.com or you follow Ivan Carter, you know, Ivan Carter's Africa on Facebook, what you'll see there is a lot of very educational, educational posts about why vote in favor of a guy like John Hume. Why should he, you know, be left on his own to fight this battle while everybody votes against the trade? You know, he sits with five and a half tons of horn in storage that he has to pay to store. That five and a half tons of horn, you say to him, Mr. Hume, what would happen if you could sell it? He'll laugh, look you right in the face and say, I'll buy more rhinos. <laughs> and he really will. You know, he's over 70 years old. He doesn't need to go and prove anything. He's got enough money. He could live anywhere in the world. He chooses to live in a very modest home, surrounded by thousands of rhinos. Mm. And all he would do is buy more. <laughs> if we could just take the conversation on a step further, but connecting all of this specifically with hunting. And this is the most unpalatable uh, part of what hunters try and convince the rest of the world that hunting, and it, it's probably the, the easiest to try and com, uh, convince people in terms of Africa, I think, because the examples are so so stark. 
where we've had successes. But why hunting is essential in some places to protect species. And for a lot of people, the idea that you have to kill something to save something, it just it doesn't compute. But there are a load of examples out there. And you, in fact, you were talking about a conservancy. I think I, I know the one that you were referring to when you were talking about 500 lions. That is a very good, a good example of some, a place that was a cattle farm that had nothing that is what it is today. So maybe you could give a couple of those examples from your own experience that really crystallize how vitally important it is to not view hunting as the end of a species, but in fact, the savior of many. Let me qualify that first, Byron. You know, there's hunting and there's hunting. We're talking about legal, sustainable hunting within carefully managed quotas. Yep. That is a very, very good thing. As soon as there's greed involved and the quotas become too high, as soon as the code of ethics is not followed, as soon as the rules and the laws are not followed, immediately at that moment, the hunting becomes unsustainable and is the worst thing wildlife can ever have. And so to be perfectly clear, legal, controlled, well-managed hunting within the law of the, of the, the, the country in which it happens, within carefully set quotas that are designed to propagate the species, not take every single one that you possibly could out of the system, is excellent. And, you know, the property that I'm talking about is the Booby Valley Conservancy. Yep. Now, the Booby Valley Conservancy, um, a couple of decades ago, introduced 17 lions. Um, those 17 lions have become 560. It's the only property, it's a property that's, that's close to a million acres. Um, it's the only property in Africa, it's privately owned, um, it's the only property in Africa where the lions are increasing at that rate. Um, why are they increasing at that rate? Because they're very well protected. There's a perimeter fence of 450 kilometers that, that runs between the lions and the community. So there's no conflict between the lions and the community insofar as, you know, killing cattle, killing sheep, ending up being poisoned or trapped or snared or speared or whatever happens to, you know, a lot of lions across Africa. The quotas there on 560 lions is 15 males. They've got to be old males. They've got to be males beyond breeding. And so what's left behind at the end of each year is those 560 with their cubs and everybody else that's growing up, less 15 old males. Old males that are destined to die anyway at some point. And each of those generates close to 100,000 US dollars. So the lions on their own pay for a giant amount of the running costs of that place. Another very interesting thing about the Booby Valley Conservancy is none of the shareholders who initially invested there have taken one cent out of it, not one cent. None of them have made any money in there out of it in two decades because they've been dedicated to the propagation of the wildlife and the conservation of the area. And so the big five abound there. There's lots of all five of the big five, which is, you know, for, for the people who don't know that, that's rhino, elephant, you know, leopard, lion, and buffalo. Um, the, the elephant, the lion, the leopard, and the buffalo are, are in very good huntable numbers. Yet this year, for the first time, that conservancy is really struggling. And it's struggling because of the Cecil effect. <laughs> Americans are no longer allowed to import lion trophies, yeah. which means that in, a, in, a, in an area like that, that relied on the American market for most of their, their income, they sit there today with lions available, which is the first time that's ever happened in history. <laughs> and so every lion 
that is not hunted this year, they are a hundred thousand US dollars in deficit of what their bottom line is. Who's going to run over there and write those checks? So, you know, when you start to look at it and you say, okay, well, surely there's an alternative. Well, they've tried in the past doing photographics. Um, logistically, it's a little difficult to get there. It's, it's spectacularly beautiful, but it's just not really on the main tourist track, which means that everybody who says, well, they should be doing photographic there. I want those people to write the check and to go there on a photo safari. Because I can promise you one thing. They are hunting, not because they love hunting, but because it's the most viable way of a return on their wildlife investment. If you could prove a more viable return on that investment that was outside of hunting, that could utilize the infrastructure they've got set up, that's what they would do. In fact, fairly recently, I put something on Facebook where, you know, it was soon after Cecil. It was soon after Cecil. And what I did is I said, you know, we will, we will stop hunting in Mozambique if we can get enough people to go there and and visit the area, pay the same as what hunters would pay, they can own the licenses, they don't have to pull the trigger. And as long as somehow the community gets the meat that would have would have been generated, as long as the same amount of money goes into the into the community for the schools and clinics, as long as the anti-poaching is maintained, we don't care if there's hunting or not. We care about giving the wildlife value. Hmm. And at the moment, Areas like the Booby Valley Conservancy, areas like Kutada 11 and Mozambique, many, many of these areas are not viable without hunting. Now, if we look on the other side of the fence and we look into Kenya, there's a lot of parts of the northern frontier district of Kenya which absolutely have disappeared as wildlife destinations because those used to be hunting areas that were protected and maintained by visiting hunters. On the flip side to that, you've got conservancies like Lewa Downs that do incredibly well, that are self-supporting, that, that are a fantastic example of how to do it right. And they thrive on photographic tourism. There's no hunting there. And so what I come back to, Byron, is I'm not, we must hunt at all costs. I am about finding solutions that give the wildlife the maximum value. And as conservationists, we have to look at the combination. The, the hunters have to understand that there are areas better suited to photographic. Yep. The photographic people need to understand that there are areas better suited to hunting. And we all need to be in this together because if we're not, there's not going to be any wildlife for us to visit anyway. No. I remember, I, I distinctly remember when you put that up on Facebook, when you were talking about you, you put that offer out there that if you could generate the same money and that, uh, that the offer was there for people to come over and you would own the, the right to hunt it, but you, it wouldn't be hunted and they could come and take pictures. And we actually brought it up on the podcast yeah, did, yeah. uh, as an example when we were, I think it would have been about the time of Cecil, so it was probably something we were yeah. talking about, saying, you know, the, this is there. And yet, and anybody could have, could we honestly do that at any point if they if they phone up a hunting uh, outfitter in Africa? We, we, could, we could have it. arranged it uh, yeah, for we, people we, as well. We, we know enough offered. people, we could have arranged it. And no, no one, one does it. No one no one you know of those what, people. When, when puts it comes their money to the there. crunch, sharing a Facebook comment, liking it, or commenting costs nobody any money, costs you five minutes. Hmm. When you come to now ask the people who want to shut hunting if they'll write a check. Now, I'll give another good example is there's an area in Botswana um, called CT2. Now, when they shut hunting in Botswana, a very well-known conservationist and filmmaker said, we will employ 
publicly on Facebook. They said, we will employ everybody that loses their jobs from hunting, and we will make sure that there's photographic lodges built everywhere that the hunting concessions close down. This particular area, CT2, is an area that's very, very dry. It's, it's just on 2 million acres. And it's an area where the elephants for many, many years have relied on water being pumped to the surface by the hunting outfitters. Yeah. After here we are four years down the road, are we three, four years down the road? Uh, since that closure, there's nothing happened there. There's no photographic installation. Um, the hunting outfitter until the end of last year, continued to pump because he couldn't bear to see 500 elephants a day coming to a dry water hole, which is what was happening. The government didn't like the fact that the hunting outfitter was pumping and it was making the hunting outfitter look good. <laughs> so what they've done is they've, they put a solar pump in there, which doesn't pump enough water for those elephants. So when you go there today, it's basically just a desert um, with a few elephants gathered around a, a really badly struggling pump there's no hunting been in the area. It was an area, as I say, of just over 2 million acres that had a quota of 22 elephant. At any one time, there'd be over 1,000 elephant in that area. Um, and I, th I think we can, we can give him credit. Is that Johan Karlitz, is it? Yes, yes, yes okay, that's yeah, right. Yeah. And so when you really look at it, you look at Johan Karlitz's area, you look at the, the ethical way in which he conducted business and so on. Um, when, when you really look at, at an area like that, is it truly better off? Everybody applauded the closure of hunting. Who's writing the checks right now? Nobody was writing checks to, to put a diesel pump in there and pay for the diesel every month. Nobody was doing that. They put a solar panel in now, which is ineffective. And so really a lot of what I would like people to do is for the anti-hunters or non-hunters who are listening to this is if you are dead against hunting, understand what you are dead against. Are you dead against the actual killing of the wildlife, which is fine and very understandable? Or are you dead against the effect and benefit of the hunter's dollars? Because if you stop the hunting, you also stop the flow of those dollars. And I'm not saying every outfit is an angel. And I'm constantly bombarded with hate mail of examples of very bad outfitters or very, very ugly hunting examples, very, you know, very unethical people on the front line pulling the trigger. I don't stand for those people for one second. No. Hunting has got to be ethical. It's got to be well done in a controlled environment. Um, I can't ever explain to a non-hunter or an anti-hunter why I want to be in pursuit of big game. I can't explain that, and I'm not going to try. But what I want them to try and do is to embrace the reality of what I call the, the fundamental wildlife economy that is turning on hunters' dollars and closing off that conduit of hunters' dollars in third world Africa where nobody's got any money is really saying no to a very valuable income stream that a lot of which in the right hands ends up promoting wildlife growth. And so when you look at the Booby Valley Conservancy, when you look at Kotada 11, which is Mark Haldane's area in, in Mozambique, Mark Haldane has invested over a million dollars in the last two decades just into anti-poaching. Just anti-poaching. I'm not talking about road maintenance or camp building, just anti-poaching. As a result of that, his wildlife has had explosive growth. We actually have an initiative where we send him money because he's done such a great job out of his own pocket of getting everything back onto its feet. He's well deserving of every cent that we can get the general public to send him for his anti-poaching teams. And so really when you start looking at that, it's a different conversation to the rhino poaching in Kruger or the, the government-backed initiatives that 
some work, some don't work. Mm-hmm. But getting back to your initial question of, of you know, poaching and the financing of such and the, 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 the conservation wheel that turns around hunting, I don't think we can look at a single country around Africa or possibly the world where the wildlife is better off after the closure of hunting. Now, that said, I want to just reiterate that I don't stand in any way, shape or form for, you know, unethical, the, the whole canned lion thing to me is disgusting. Um, that, that should be outlawed and banned today. Um, the, whole, the whole put and take kind of, kind of model that exists in Africa where, you know, people are shooting in, in little in tiny places. Almost, yeah. You know, I'm talking about the, the vast areas of Western Tanzania, of Eastern Mozambique, of, you know, er, areas in Zambia where, you know, when hunting was closed in Zambia, if photographic tourism was such a viable proposition, why were those areas still available three years later when those areas were back open to hunting? Yeah, yeah, very true. And I, I read a, a paper written by, I'm sure it was Washington State University, I can't recall. Uh, it was in Sports of Field magazine. And they had actually done a study on the protein intake of the local areas over the three years. I think it was three years where they closed down hunting in Zambia. And it was quite incredible, actually, what was happening to the local populations. And, and the bottom line at the end of three years was that the, the, the locals were begging the government to open up hunting again because they were all starving. Yes. No, absolutely. And so, again, it's one thing to, to live in, in a city where you've never actually truly been hungry and vote for something because of an emotional response to a picture of a dead lion with a you know, fat, unhealthy-looking hunter sitting grinning behind it. You just have to know what you're voting for. Mm-hmm. And you're actually voting against the wildlife in a lot of cases. You're voting against the tribal people in a lot of cases. And you're voting against the, the conservation model that's, that's actually thriving in places where it's allowed to. You know, in another effect of the Cecil, the whole Cecil thing, and um, it is really the, the fact that it's become unfashionable for, for people to to go and trophy hunt, which, you know, that is what it is. Um, I personally am not a trophy hunter. I'm a, I'm a professional hunter by trade. I've seen millions and millions of dollars flow through me into various, you know, various initiatives because of people pursuing trophies. Thank goodness those people are there. You know, the Lord Derby, Elon and Cameroon, the, you know, let's get off the African continent for a minute. What hope do you think the Sinda Ibex has got in Pakistan of surviving if people don't go there to hunt it. Yeah, Tell me example. one person you know that has spent money to go and take a photo of a Sindai <laughs> uh, I have to say, Pakistan is generally not on the top list not. For, for tourists. And so yet that's why a, else would you go there? It's a fantastic <laughs> example because uh, and that part of the world, there are some brilliant examples of how purely hunting, but giving the responsibility to the local people, Marco is another one, uh, has saved a species from the brink of extinction. Absolutely. I mean, let's look at Marco Polo's sheep for a minute. I've been to Tajikistan. I've spent time pursuing Marco Polo sheep. I'll be back there in December. Those sheep, there's 80 permits. The local tribe owns every single permit. They have 35,000 US dollars per permit is what the local tribe gets. <laughs> then their agents and everybody else along the, along the way um, get about 10 or $12,000. But $35,000 to a tribe living in a, a fairly rural community gives them every reason on the planet to protect those sheep from, from meat poachers, from shepherds displacing them. And so as a result, any single day in the Pamir Mountains, if you were to go there, 
you would see upwards of a thousand sheep. Mm-hmm. How many people do you know that are putting together trips? I mean, why don't you phone one of the why don't you phone one of the the London ad- adventure travel companies and ask <laughs> them to put you a trip to the t- Pamir Mountains to visit Marco Polo sheep? How many how many of those groups do you think are leaving every day? I don't think there's very many. <laughs> and so if you were to outlaw the hunting, how on earth are those sheep going to survive? Because the very people that today are protecting them are probably going to open an abattoir and start killing them yeah. for meat. Because yeah. yeah. they don't care. No. You know, the, the people of the world, the, the rural people are who are going to make the decision. If it's in Africa, the decision is going to be made based on how those animals can best fill their stomachs or their wallets. Mm-hmm. And very often it's hunters' dollars that are filling their wallets and making them want to have more wildlife because then their wallets get fuller. That that's something that I actually I've seen on social media a few times, and it's it's an argument that's actually been uh, put up as the money that hunters pay doesn't actually help the local communities. Maybe, can you t- maybe tell us how it does help the local communities? So yeah, again, we've got to just make sure that we define one thing. And that is not every outfitter is a great outfitter. <laughs> not every shop owner is a great shop owner. Not every business person is a great business person. You know, we, we've, there's goods and bads in every, everywhere. Unfortunately, in hunting, because it's such an inflammatory topic, the bad examples come to the top all the time. And that's a bad deal. And so what we've got to do is we've got to look at this whole thing. and We've got to say, okay, you know, how does a local community benefit from a legitimate you know, ethical, high-brow outfit. So again, I'm, we're going to go straight to the Booby Valley Conservancy because I hold those guys in high regard. Four tons of meat every single month is distributed to communities outside their boundaries. So that's for a start. So for free, all they've got to do is show up at the gate with their donkey carts and their, you know, their vehicles and whatever, and four tons of meat a month gets distributed to them. So that's protein going into the community that they fully understand where it comes from, why it's there. And the other thing is, if there's poaching that is discovered from one of the communities, they don't get their meat for a certain amount of time. So that's an immediate, immediate deal. There's a a very substantial clinic that is financed 100% by the Booby Valley Conservancy on the outskirts. There's several schools that are financed. And let me just say this, next door, there's a giant cattle ranch and there's a giant orange farming estate. Ask me right now how much they put into their community, how much they put into their schools and how much they put into their clinics. And when you ask me and I say nothing, everybody shrugs their shoulders because they're not supposed to. They're just in business, aren't they? They're not supposed to do that because they're just in business. Well, well, how is that different on the inside of a game fence? They're just in business too. And yet to try and do good for the local communities to eliminate poaching and to engender good conservation, they're doing all these extra things that nobody in any other business is expected to do. Are you guys expected to, right now, as soon as we finish this podcast, you know, are you expected to, when you get a paycheck finally, to go and just give some of it away no. to a local community? Of course you're not. Nobody does that to any single other business. And yet when it comes to hunting, even the photographic companies are not expected to put lots back into their communities. A lot of them do, but no one is harassing them to see what they do. So why would you do that with a hunting business? Yeah, L- looking, very, look, very valid point. Yeah, very valid point. <laughs> it's, just, it's looking for reasons, isn't yeah. it? It's searching for reasons as to why those guys are bad guys. 
Uh, and but like you say, yes, and I, I'll just reinforce what you said because we absolutely stand by that. It, it's it's slightly different here, but we always maintain that if somebody is doing something unethical, if they are breaking the laws that are in place, whether you agree with the laws that are in place or not, then that's bad luck. You are no longer part of this community, which you should you are privileged to be part of, and that is you know the hunting, the the, the countryside, the outdoors community, whatever you you want to call it. Because that is the stance that we have to take. And we are 100% for ethical practices. And that line does have to be drawn. Because as you say, there, there are bad guys. Not all hunters are good guys. But we, we try and use the word, you know, hunters, use the words hunters and conservationists. And it, it is frustrating sometimes when a very small number of bad guys ruin all the good work that's done by many uh, and and me and Byron have said that when when people are doing bad practice then we need to make people aware that we don't stand next to these people yeah we that, need to we so, need to I, I think one of the things that uh, the industry has been guilty of which is exactly what Daryl's mm -hmm. saying is that some of those things went on we disagreed with it so, you know you, you shouldn't do that maybe someone spoke to them but then that was it because we didn't want to bring it to the surface because we didn't want the rest of the world to think we were all like that. My view on yes. it personally is we should grab those people as an example. And you say, you see what this person is doing? That's disgusting or whatever it is. This is not what we are about. Yeah. And hang them out to dry. That's my, my opinion of it. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the way that I look at it as well, there's always discussion about rules and regulations and People a lot smarter than me have made those rules. And the reason they made them is to try and engender good conservation practices and ethical offtake. And, and basically those rules are in place that, hey, if you follow these rules, the wildlife's going to be in great shape and the whole model's going to turn. Now, like anything, stuff changes. And so you get a particular dry season. Hey, man, maybe we've got to change some rules. You get a particularly wet season. Maybe we've got to change some rules, got to increase some quota, decrease some quota, you know, change the way we do stuff. At the end of the day, what I think we all have to be really aware of is we're under the microscope. No one is knocking on the door of a paint shop saying, hey, what do you do for your community? No one is knocking on the door of a, a construction company saying, hey, what do you do for the community? People are looking for reasons to hate hunters. People are looking for reasons to shut hunting down and Here's the news. Well, it's not really news, but it's the reality. Hunting is getting shut down. Mm -hmm. And in order for us to start slowing down those shutdowns, because the only thing that's going to suffer in Africa from the shutting down of hunting is the wildlife itself. And so really, when you look at it, if we, are, if we want to see this carry on, we've got to do a better job of, of promoting good ethical, you know, hunting, of promoting what happens to the to, to the communities around those hunting places. Another example I was just going to jump into really quickly is, um, you know, Kutada 11, which is Mark Haldane's place. So their buffalo population has gone from 1,200 in 1995 to, to in excess of 25,000. Wow. Um, wow. Their sable population went from 44. They could only find 44. His, his concession is about 700,000 acres. They could only find 44 in there when he first flew the area. And today they stopped counting at about three and a half thousand. Um, last September was the count. So it, it really is explosive growth. Now that's not all animals bred on that property. Of course, they've migrated in there because of protective measures. When you look at his community, because of an increase in quotas, he can now employ more people. 
because his, as the animal populations have grown, so his offtake quotas have grown. So he's in a better place financially. He can employ more people. He can employ more people to do his anti-poaching. All of the meat that is taken from his game, which is significant, they, they take about 700 animals plus a year off that property. Every mouthful of meat that's not used by the kitchen of the camp is distributed to the communities. There's, there's financial return into those communities in the form of clinics and schools. And so really when you look at it, if he pulled out tomorrow, the communities would eat the wildlife. They'd have four or five really fat years where there was plenty of game to eat. And then what? Because there's one thing I'll tell you. Ethical, reasonable offtake does not exist in the vocabulary of a hungry tribal person. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, uh, another quote that I, that I often say is that, you know, people, the, the opinions of people with a full belly don't really matter. <laughs> Because it's the people with the empty belly that are going to make the decisions about how they manage their wildlife, yeah. you know, and, and there's, you know, a good conservationist is somebody who understands the empty bellies that are around him and understands how to fill those bellies and make them understand the value of their wildlife. Because, you know, a quote that I really, really like that somebody asked me to come up with a, a while ago is that appreciating the simple beauty of wildlife is a concept that can only be understood by somebody with a full belly. Yes, I should, we because shared that hungry, when you put that up first time. You know, if you're hungry, you don't care about how beautiful it looks. You care about what it tastes like. Yeah, it's very true. I mean, that brings me perfectly on to the next thing I wanted to ask you about, which is talks about far less because it's it's not held as as highly as, as rhino horns or ivory, and it's certainly not, not as visual, it kind of goes unnoticed, is the bushmeat trade and the damage that that is doing in, across Africa, but in, in particular parts of Africa. I know you spent a, a bit of time with um, gorillas recently. Maybe you could just elaborate on that and just explain to people what is actually going on on the ground because we don't see a lot of that damage that's done through the bushmeat trade. I think that's probably the, the most the most crucial thing to identify is the bushmeat trade. And the reason I say that is because, yes, we focus on rhinos because they're on the brink of extinction. Yes, we focus on elephants. You know, 100,000 elephants a year are killed for, for ivory. You know, 100,000 animals a month or a week are killed for bushmeat. More bushmeat is procured in the Congo Basin. Let me just back up a little bit. To be clear, what bushmeat is, is meat from wildlife that has been illegally trapped, hunted, or killed um, you know, whether it's in a national park or not, but basically it's, it's as its name suggests, it's meat from the bush. And so more bush meat comes out of the Congo Basin than the entire beef production of Brazil in a year. So how sustainable is that? You know, I mean, when you see a logging truck and it goes, goes into the city and in between the logs, it's just loaded up with monkeys and, you know, dikers and, and all of that smoked and dried and ready to go. Um, you know, you look into Mozambique, anywhere where there's a fast-growing population and not adequate policing, there's going to be a bushmeat trade. Because, as I say, you know, people are looking at the food value of the wildlife first because they've got this fast-growing population. You know, and I think that that is the crux of the bushmeat issue. Is Africa, as we all know, is one of the has one of the fastest-growing populations on the planet, and you know, there's not extra jobs being made. There's not you know, we're not seeing huge increases in food production, agriculture. 
And so they have to eat. And any one of the three of us sitting there with an empty belly, you know, just across from a national park is going to eat. You know, we're just not going to do it legally. And one of the things that I, that I often say is that, you know, again, it's wildlife theft. It's, it's you know, they do it with traps and, and wire snares and so on. And, you know, I'm not against trapping. I'm against, you know, negative negative effects from no quota. And so whatever animal walks into that leg hole trap or into that snare or or whatever is what's going to die, whether it's a male or a female, mature, immature, and they're going to take as much as they can physically carry because that's how they, you know, the, the bushmeat people, are, they make their money out of out of procuring bushmeat. And so, yeah, it's, it's a huge industry in many parts of Africa, particularly West Africa. Those forests are getting getting really, really you know, poached out. Um, a lot of parts of Southern Africa, it's, it's pretty bad. And so, yeah, even in Zambia, you know, the bushmeat trade in Zambia has hammered the hippos. You know, a lot of the large ungulates and a lot of the national parks, when they when they closed hunting and there was no anti-poaching, you know, the, a lot of those those large ungulate populations were totally decimated. So, yeah, it's a it's a big issue. It's a much bigger issue than people realize. And, uh, you know, there's nothing more painful than seeing, a you know, a kilometer long line of snares with, you know, 100 dead animals in it in various states of decay because the, the snares haven't been checked, you know. It's just, uh, just uh, yeah, we, I've shared the, some of the pictures that you've put up in the past. I think you had a picture of, I'm, I'm not sure if it was yourself or uh, Cliff Walker actually had a, uh, a picture of some lines and, and some snares that, are, that have been caught. But it's horrible to look at, it, even yeah. more horrible when it's wasted. They haven't been able to check the snares for whatever reason and the, the meat has actually gone to waste. But like you say, it's completely indiscriminate and it's destroying vast populations of game across africa and yet it goes it, well, certainly as far as the rest of the world's concerned i can only really speak for the uk but I, i'm yeah, pretty sure very, it pretty much goes under the radar yeah i don't think many people really know about it i, I wanted to ask you about your experience with the the gorillas yeah i know that that was an incredible experience and one of the stories we're doing there is as i say the live trade in baby chimps and gorillas and, and so on and you know those are animals that are very sensitive to habitat loss um, they're animals that are that are you know you just need to watch a movie called Virunga, mm. and um, you'll you'll realize really what what kind of a place the Congo is. And you know at the end of the day, there's some killing of gorillas for bushmeat. There's some killing of gorillas for for the live baby gorilla trade, which is a you know a baby gorilla fetches a lot of money when it gets to the end of the line. But you know they they sensitive little things and they don't do well cooped up in a box at 100 degrees and and you know, sitting on a ship for days. And so, you know, most of them die on the journey. Um, they really are a very endangered species. The the, the national park that, that I was in and that we'll be going back to is called Kahuzi Biega National Park, where they've got the Grower's Gorilla. It's a it's a subspecies of the gorillas. And um, yeah, that's the only place with a viable population of it is, is in that region. And so, yes, there is a habituated group. Yes, there are some tourists that go and see it from time to time. But you know, we're in the middle of Congo. We're not. We're not in the middle of New York, and so it's it's tough to get to. There's there's very limited tourism there, and so, you know, to to a poacher, to a bad guy, to a community, it 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 presents an opportunity, and as long as they know that there's a market for these live babies, it's um, yeah, that market's going to be fulfilled one one way or another. And again, that comes down to education because. Let's talk about chimps for a, for a minute. You know, not an uncommon animal. 
not really endangered. And yet, because of their intelligence, because of how, how appealing they are as babies, there's a big trade in those. I mean, even in America, you can buy one for $1,000 online. And yet, as that thing grows up, it's got 10 times the strength of a human. It's so intelligent that the accidents related to chimpanzees are huge because they get bitter by being mistreated, by being kept in the cage, and they're smart enough to just make a plan and finally get you. And they are that smart. Yeah. I mean, I was at, at Luero, which is um, a fantastic spot with some very, very dedicated conservation. It's, it's, a, it's a chimpanzee rehab place. And I remember one time there's this old male that's been there for many years that was confiscated from a market where he was being forced to dance for money. And um, he's in the cage and he hates people. And yet he's so smart, you know, that the vet will go there and he'll allow the vet, you know, in return for a reward, he'll put his arm out so she can take his temperature. And I mean, they're smart, smart, smart things. Um, but as a, as a visitor, you know, I walked past and the first thing he did was, was handed me a piece of grass through the wire. So I took the piece of grass and he stepped a bit close and he handed me another piece. And then he threw a little stone out there and the person who was with me said, no, 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 just step back here. Because what he was doing was enticing me closer and closer to the wire. And then eventually I'd be close enough and he'd grab my arm. And he did exactly the same thing. Um, you know, gorillas, not that particular one, have done exactly the same thing in other places and literally tear the skin and, and, and the meat off your arm, you know, with one tear. And he's smart enough to know how to get to, to do that. And so they're not great pets at all. They're horrible pets. They're fantastically entertaining as babies, um, if you want to have monkey poop everywhere. Um, <laughs> but at the end of the day, they're designed to be in the forest. They're designed to be in the wild. And they're not designed to be, you know, spend the rest of their days in a, in a very strong locked-up cage. And, and that's their destination. And so it's a, it's a heartbreaking thing. But again, it's something the world doesn't even realize is going on. And you look at these conservationists on the front line right there at, at Luero, and um, like a lot of these spots, they're underfunded, misunderstood, and yeah, they, they're doing the best they can with, with very limited funding, but the reality is they're not really winning that battle at all because they, not enough people know that they exist to give them the support they need to make a difference, you know. And for that particular example, I mean, the only solution that I can see there is, is education. How else do you solve that problem? Adequate funds to save these things on their on their journey. Over a thousand baby chimps embark on that journey a year, and less than ten percent of them survive it. Wow. Where where are they all mainly destined to? Is it the states? Um, to to the to Asia, Asia and Saudi. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just as we sort of get towards uh, wrapping up, I wanted to ask you about um, two things. Firstly, is the support of companies within the industry. I know you, you work closely with Nosla, um, yes. the SCI, uh, Dallas Safari Club. Just explain for those people who are not involved in the, the day-to-day hunting and know of these organizations, just how important their support is for the likes of what you do and what other people do, not for hunting, but hunting is part of conservation. You know, one of the one of the great things about Nosla, about Trigicon, you know, about Cryptic, the, the people that really, really take care of us, is you look at those folks and they've supported our program. Um, season one, our two key sponsors were um, were Nosla and Trigicon. Now it's not a hunting program at all. 
and yet both of those countries have got i mean countries both of those uh, those those outfits have got significant amounts of money that they put into they put into conservation notwithstanding that there's actually no return on that investment for them however them supporting the carters the carters war initiative meant that we could get this message out to millions and millions of people and so you know when you really look at what nasla stand for as a company what trigicon stand for as a company you know unbelievable conservation ethos that flows through those two companies and so you know i, I i'm always very very proud to wear those logos i'm i'm very proud to to be a part of their team not because of their their products which are fantastic products but because of their conservation initiatives you know both of them produce literally world class products i mean nasla ammunition is is world renowned very very good ammunition you know the the trigicon optics are are very very good and you know byron when you really look at you look at those those two companies for them to have embarked and and written a significant check to enable us to to produce our show shows i mean hands down a fantastic conservation initiative so yeah very proud to be part of those very very proud of it it's um yeah something that that yeah it's it's hard to talk about it without getting emotional actually because it, as long as there's companies like that there there's going to be conservation and as long as there's conservation there's going to be wildlife and as long as there's wildlife we're going to get to take our kids out to see it you know i definitely think there are there are some great companies out there doing a lot i would like to see more companies doing more uh i i think that there is definitely there's definitely some room yeah. a lot of uh i'm just trying to I was, the one I was doing some research for the article that I was I referred to at the the start of the um at the start of this podcast and what I didn't realize in the states was that they have a tax on all sporting goods ammunition and rifle which that money then goes into a a public fund which is then uh handed out to the the various different agencies in in different states it's a good example of how actually spending money on products for hunting is being plowed back into conservation initiatives. Oh, absolutely. And and that taxes, I mean, that provides millions and millions and millions of dollars to direct on the ground, you know, North American conservation. Mm. And you know, there there's all kinds of taxes like that in the states. There's a duck stamp which um you may or may not have heard of of federal duck stamps in order to hunt ducks in the states. You have to purchase a duck stamp which um you know it it's usually a very well drawn it's a, it's a big deal for an artist to get to be chosen for the duck as uh, to get the duck stamp every cent of that money that's generated from that duck stamp which um I, i don't know off the top of my head i could quickly google it but it, it's millions and millions of dollars goes back into duck conservation mm. and so there's all kinds of initiatives like that where if they suddenly were to outlaw duck hunting who's writing those checks by and no one is and that's the astounding no, thing that's what the problem is yeah. it's not it's not about stopping hunting i can completely understand why the misinformed public would like to see hunting stop because we got into this earlier we we've done such a bad job of really publicizing the good that hunters dollars do and so i can completely understand why they would want to stop hunting but i want people to understand what else they stopping by stopping hunting and the elephants gathered around the water point and the ineffective anti poaching measures in western tanzania today and the all of these things that used to be hunted by fi- by by hunters dollars are no longer financially viable how can they be right hmm. 
Just uh, just lastly, I, I w- wanted to pick your brains or get some of your thoughts on the damage that the big anti-hunting, uh, often animal right activist type organizations do when they come out with quite often completely ridiculous statements. And celebrities. And celebrities, yeah, we can, we can uh, throw them in there too. What damage they do to wildlife, you're probably going to maybe go back over some of the things you said already, but just to reinforce that fact, because those tend to be, especially when it's, we're talking about celebrities, those tend to be the kinds of people or the kinds of organizations that the general public are listening to. Yes, and, and you know, Byron, let me, let me just start by saying your own royal family what they do for conservation across Africa is absolutely massive. It's massive. And a big part of what they do is standing up for yep. legal, sustainable, ethical offtake. And, you know, when you look at, at what Prince Harry does for the rhino wall, and he does it from a very pragmatic, practical perspective where he comes here, he's on the ground, he understands and he researches what's going on, and then he 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 thinks very openly about how that's supposed to happen. You know, when a celebrity is making a statement like that, I hate to say it, but it's so that they can get popularity mm-hmm. because of how bad we get back to the same thing. How badly we have, you know, we have have positioned ourselves as legal ethical hunters. We are not likable people because the general public doesn't really understand what we do. And why is that? Because we haven't explained it. It all comes back to us. And so the damage that's done when an initiative is stopped, like the Booby Valley Conservancy, for example, I can absolutely assure you if at the CITES conference, lion and leopard are uplisted, the Booby Valley Conservancy, which has spent 30 years turning this giant million-acre property from cattle to livestock, you know, they're probably going to be back with cattle because it's not viable without the income that's generated from those two species that are increasing in number. On that property, those species are increasing, which means that their their quotas are very carefully set. Their quotas are very well managed. And so, therefore, in 30 years down the road, are we going to be saying, wow, this is wonderful, from conservation to cattle in just 10 years? (laughs) No. but that's actually what's going to happen. And just, and so, sorry, Ivan, just yeah. since, you, since you bring it up, do you think that is going to happen when they meet in September at the CITES conference? Do you think they will change the, the appendix that it's in? Elephants as well, you know, I think, are on, on the list of topics to discuss. So one of the things as well, and I don't want this to become about politics, but one of the, so, so the way CITES works, and a lot of people don't understand this, is every delegate gets to vote and their votes are all the same, which means that two and a half thousand people are going to vote for or against herring fishing. Two and a half thousand people are going to vote for or against uplisting leopard. What does a Scandinavian, Scandinavian you know, delegate understand about a leopard? Hmm. Yeah. They've got a four-day conference to cover all of these topics. There's not enough time at that conference for everybody to really understand what they're voting for. It goes a step further than that, which I'll get into in a minute. But, you know, what does what the delegates from Swaziland know about the whale offtake? But they are going to get to vote for it. And so it goes a step further where, unfortunately, what has ended up happening is, it's fairly scandalous, but 
the the anti-hunting groups and the people with a, a, the agendas for opening or shutting these various things or, or shutting down, you know, the hunting of a species or uplisting or whatever, they very often will get hold of the delegates and basically buy their votes and say, hey, you know, you'll have a nice new car when you get back if you vote in favor of this. Mm-hmm. And they know that you only need 51%. You only need one more. And so it's a very carefully planned deal where there's a lot of people with a lot of agendas. But again, that notwithstanding, if leopard becomes outlawed, we're putting a nail in the coffin of the leopard in Africa. If lion becomes outlawed as far as it being a you know uplisted and a non a non-huntable species, yeah. Yeah. millions of acres of western Tanzania are, will no longer be wildlife areas. Because the outfitters, there's no photographic tourism there at all. It's too difficult to get to. The logistics are too difficult. They're expensive. And so outside of some small, very badly equipped, very ineffectively um, financed government programs for anti-poaching, that's all that's going to be there. And so your local communities are just going to swarm those areas, which up till now have been protected by hunters' dollars. And so... You know, the anti-hunters really have, a, a, it's much easier if you don't know anything to join the anti-hunting crowd than the pro-hunting crowd for the reasons we've just spoken about. But likewise, it's the effect that they have on the wildlife of Africa is devastating. You just need to look at Botswana. They keep it very much under wraps. But, um, you know, the, the poaching's at an all-time high. Communities that were receiving the carcasses of 10 or 15 elephants a year now don't receive any meat for free. They're still eating meat. Where do you think that's coming from? Um, the jobs that have evaporated right the way, you know, all across the northwestern part. And, you know, I'm not saying that hunting is the only answer in Botswana, not at all. In fact, there's a lot of very viable, very good photographic installations in Botswana that are a better option than hunting. What I'm saying is that there's parts of Botswana where hunting is the only way that wildlife is going to make, make a financial return. And shutting those down kills that wildlife. And it's as simple as that. The, the bad part of it is there's people as passionate about shutting it down as we are as keeping it open, but they just have different agendas. They, they haven't looked the next step into what's actually going to happen when it shuts. Mm. And so if we were all honest with ourselves and we look today right now and there's, a, there's people who live in, in Mound that I'm not going to name, name them openly on here, but... Um, all they do is study the bushmeat trade. That's all they do. And they've been doing so for 15 years. They, they you know, are, are backed by some of, some of the world's leading universities. If we were to ask them whether the wildlife is in better shape or worse shape since the closure of hunting, absolutely 100%, they will tell you it's in way, way, way worse shape. And the reason is a lot of those areas are sitting just empty. There's no one policing them, no one patrolling them, no money flowing into them. And so, yeah, the, the wildlife's just getting eaten and poached for ivory, you know. Hmm. No, we, we, we as hunters, as, as conservationists, as people who care about wildlife, we've got a, a big challenge ahead of us in our lifetime. And I just hope that we can uh, do the or achieve what we need to achieve to get that information out there and the initiatives like like you're doing with Carter's Wall, which is something which is palatable to people who have no interest in hunting, but highlights what the issues are 
is exactly yeah. the kind of thing we need to be seeing more more in the mainstream. And uh, we well, need to I, see more in this country. We do, yeah. And uh, we absolutely you know commend you for the stuff that you've been doing, Ivan. We've uh, you know followed you very closely for a long time. We mentioned well, you quite a lot in our podcast, uh, and it's it's brilliant to see that. We just need more people doing it, and we need more acceptance in the mainstream to allow messages like the messages that you're carrying to actually get in there. It, that's that's the key to break through into that that mainstream yes we have social media and i think that's yes it's very powerful but it's very easy for it to get flooded by yeah. people with a, a completely different and quite often disingenuous agenda uh, it, for, for our listeners uh how could they help how could they be involved you know i think the very best way is um for them them to go to to carterswar.com contact me and um yeah they, we are always always working on on different projects, trying to get support for anti-poaching, trying to get support for various rhino dehorning initiatives or the people on the front line in the Congo. Or, you know, man, I could spend 30 minutes just talking about the great work that some of these people are doing on the front line. So, you know, what I what, what I, I have is um, we've literally just in the last few months set up the, the Ivan Carter Wildlife Conservation Alliance. The goal of that is is to provide support for people on the front line who are doing the right thing for wildlife management and, and anti-poaching and, and all of that. And, you know, we've set it up a lot different to a lot of other foundations where we guarantee that apart from bank fees, 100% of the money gets to the front line of wherever you want it to go. So if you were to contact me and say, look, I want to get money to car and homes at the Rhino Reserve, if that's within my power to get it to her, every cent of it outside of the bank fees will get there. And if you... Um, you know, if if we can't get it there for one reason, we'll come back to you and say, okay, we can either send you your money back or you can choose one of our other initiatives because for whatever reason, you know, that, that may not be able to happen. So, you know, we we are very, you know, very conscious of the needs on the front line. I, I encounter them all the time. And I'm also very conscious of the fact that the general public doesn't often know what those needs are. And so, um, yeah, the, the Ivan Carter um, WCA will... will um, you know that website's going to go live very shortly. I'll let you know via email when it is live, and uh, yeah, that's going to be a great portal for people who can research how to help and actually hopefully do some helping. You know, uh, and for the people that think, well, I don't have a huge amount of money or anything like that, could you maybe say tell them how important just a tiny amount might be for these foundations? As we said earlier, you know, it, it's there's two ways to raise a million dollars, and and one of them is to find somebody to write you a million dollar check and i can promise you there's not many of those people out there and so it's much easier to try and reach a million people and get them to each send you a dollar and you still get your million dollars at the end of it and um, you're able to to make a huge amount of difference and so you know for anybody who who really wants to i'm not saying your kids will ever go to africa i'm not saying that you'll ever go to africa but if you want to preserve the choice to do so we have to act now, and and you know, getting back a little bit towards towards the the whole the whole hunting thing. What I would ask the people who are listening, who are maybe anti hunters or, or non hunters, and 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 whatever, is that when it's your chance to vote, are you going to vote for the wildlife and the people of Africa, the people whose very lives are invested in that wildlife, or are you going to vote for the popular misconceptions that are spawned by social media? and generated by largely the city-dwelling people of the first world who may never have been there. Mm. Who, who, is, who are you going to vote for? You're going to vote to be popular amongst the people who've never seen an animal, 
or you're going to vote for the people who actually are managing those animals, who are investing their lives in those animals and are truly doing the best that they can on the front line. And, you know, very often it's the hunter's dollars that enable them to do all of that good. And, and you know, in closing, let me just say, I'm not asking anybody to get out there and hunt. I'm not asking anybody to like hunting. What I'm asking them to do is to accept the good that hunter's dollars do and to accept that there's good and bad hunters out there and the good hunters do a huge amount of good. I think that is the most perfect point to stop. Ivan, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on. Uh, and I'm sure at some point in, in the future, when you do your next project, we will we'll try and get you on again. I I know for certain that people are going to love hearing from you uh, once, once we put this out. This will be going out on Thursday. Is, is there going to be a chance that Carter's War will be available on DVD or anything like that? We are actually working right now on some international distribution deals. Um, like everything, I like everything to happen yesterday, but um, <laughs> those things take a while. But I'll, you guys will be the first to know as soon as we get um, some distribution that gets into the UK. So uh, We'll but, make sure everybody knows yeah. that, uh, that follows us. But Ivan, thank you so much for your time today. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, you guys. Thank you very much for listening to the show. I learned a few things as usual. Whenever guests come on, I learn something, which I think that's what it's about. That's the whole point. Whole point. And for the people that are listening, this show is so important. This, I mean, we've, all of our shows are important, but this one in particular, just due to the things that are going on in the world that people really need to be made aware of and people can help out. Mm -hmm. And the key is, as Ivan points out in this uh, interview, is that the reason for most of our issues is actually education. Yeah, it's a it's an education and it's misunderstanding of the issues and the problems and the solutions. And as he said, and as we have said for well, basically since we started doing these podcasts, is that the shooting industry and hunters have been incredibly poor in decades gone by at making sure we put information out there in a positive way that reflects accurately the really good work that we do. We're not saying that there aren't some bad guys. Obviously, there are in any walk of life. There are some bad guys who do bad things, but they are not part of of the shooting, hunting world. And and now is the time to take a stand yeah. and, and say, no, what they're doing is wrong. And yeah, and they end off, outcast end off. Yeah, just, that's, it. that's it. And who cares? I mean, we, we've, we've seen it. Who cares if you think that someone's doing something wrong and you're like, well, I don't really want to outcast this person or, or call them out because that it's going to give ammunition to the antis. No, the antis need to know that these people have got absolutely nothing to do with anything we do and they are not part of, of the yeah, shooting part community, of uh, the hunting community, whatever you want to call it. They're outcast. Mm -hmm. It's so important. And we've seen that recently. And you know what? The feedback's actually been positive. Yeah. The only way that we're going to be able to go forward and make sure most importantly that the wildlife has a place on this planet is to actually interact with those people those organizations those groups that want to see what we do shut down because we know and we believe that what we are doing is right and we need to have conversations with them we need to actually sit down at a table and find out where the common ground is because there will be some it might be small but there will be some and that's the key as i just said it's all about education we need to get that information out there it is and what i I quite like to hear when Ivan was talking was there's places that hunting and conservation go absolutely perfectly. And there's also places that hunting doesn't work and photographic yeah. tours work. So there is compromise. It's not the best solution. It's not the, yeah. it's not the best solution. So there, there is, 
there is things that everybody can do to find the the balance and yeah. uh, the, the bottom line is is that we need to look after species home and abroad not just in africa we're talking about this country as well we've got species under threat in this country as well and they all need looked after and and we need to do something soon because in our generation we could see a lot more things being lost yeah not just uh animals but habitat habitat well. yeah yeah we need we need to find the best solution if that, and if that includes hunting then that's great if it doesn't uh if hunting isn't part of the the answer to that and an answer that makes sense not just for the wildlife but for the people as well then that's fine too and we need to embrace that as hunters that's the one thing that we need to take from that if you're a hunter is uh, to learn from what ivan said is that it doesn't mean we need to hunt everything in no. every corner of the planet. That is not what this is about. We know that in certain circumstances, for certain species, it is the right thing to do. And it is it is a, a brilliant way to ethically manage species, especially in places where us as humans are ever encroaching on I, habitat. I think that the, the thing that gets overlooked time and time again is the human element. Like, people are there, so you still actually have to treat the people as part of the landscape so you can't just go you know uh, ignore the ignore the people that are hungry or they live there i mean the the world's getting smaller at the end of the day we're getting less and less space for people to live in and people are going to encroach on these animals lives and you have to consider uh i mean you can you can bring it back to this country you got to think of places in the uk that are very rural remote and their only way to sustain a family and their way of life is through, through management of the through land. management of the land and we and see that with gamekeepers of friends yeah. all the time so it translates across the world people the, the bottom line and this is probably one of the big takeaways is that the the local people in whatever country you're talking yeah, it about doesn't the world, matter what country they need to have a vested interest in the wildlife and the habitat and in the long term if that isn't the case then it just doesn't work and what loses out is the wildlife and uh, as a result of that what, who lose out is us it's been a great podcast uh, i'm going to be listening to it again that is for sure because ivan is just one of those great characters and i absolutely commend him for the work that he has done you go, need to go follow him. Yeah, you need go to and see check what him out. Doing. Follow him and share his stuff. Yeah, share stuff and share this show. Not just because we're on it, but share it because this has got such good information. Everything across all of our podcasts. There's some amazing information out there. In our description, we're going to have how you can uh, follow Ivan as well. Absolutely. Now we have another prize. We do. We said at the start we're going to give you the opportunity to win something, and this week, or well, for the next two weeks you have the chance to win a Power Monkey Extreme. If, if anyone doesn't know what Power Monkey is, it's... It's not it, a monkey. It's not It's not a monkey. <laughs> We're not selling monkeys. Or, sorry, giving away monkeys. <laughs> uh, what it is, it's a power bank. So it powers phones. It powers small devices. Sometimes they can charge um, small laptops as well. Yeah, they can. Uh, this one is worth... How much? Oh, so, so well over 100 well quid. Well over 100 quid. I actually own one. I own. Um, I got you there. Yeah, actually. I, I actually own a very small version of it. I don't think it's as big as the one that. No, it's not. It's no. not as big as this one. And I've used it multiple times, and it works. It works in the UK. It does work in the UK uh, for your phone. I've charged my phone. It's very slow on a cloudy day in the UK, but very useful on a sunny day. Hmm. It oh. does. It does work. It, it does work. But what's cool about the the Power Monkey Extreme is it not only is these two little solar panels that flip out like Daryl was describing. 
but it's also a power bank. So yeah, it stores the yeah. energy for later as exactly. well. So, and and if it's anything like mine, you can actually charge the power bank and your phone at the same time. Mm. And the power bank, my one, gives you about half a charge because it's very small. I mean, this is pocket size. My one, I'm talking about. So yeah, very cool thing to have. I don't know why you wouldn't want one. So it's yeah, it universally useful. And we're increasingly relying on our little gadgets that require power, like your iPhones and um, whatever other. Uh, smartphone you use or your iPods and they're always running out of charge (laughs) especially if you're out in the bush so what we're going to do to win this prize we are heading to Norway and we're going to be doing quite a few live shows uh, live uh, Facebook podcast shows what we're going to do is we're going to give it away on one of the live shows yes we are so on the the podcast page so you have to like the podcast page and we're going to give it away while we're either in Norway traveling or something like that, but you'll just have to yeah. keep, keep up to date on the, on the Facebook page. Yes, you will. So the bottom line is, is if you are a listener, then go like our Facebook page podcast into the wilderness, uh, and just keep an eye out for the live video feeds and we will be giving the power monkey away. Yeah. At some point it's going to be, well, let's say we leave on the 8th of, September, mm-hmm. so a week after that, yeah, sometime in the week from, from the eighth of September. After that, we can uh, we can give away the the prize. There might be a question involved. We don't know yet. It'll be live, so you might have to do something. Yeah, maybe we'll, we'll try and pick a cool place. Yeah, we'll, to we'll, give it away uh, a cool location at a sociable hour. We'll we'll try and do that so that people are not at work. Yeah, we'll be an hour ahead in Norway as well. Yeah, we will. So. Well, thank you very much for listening. Remember that this podcast is available on iTunes, which 99% of you listen on. It's on SoundCloud, Stitcher for the Android user, and TuneIn Radio as well, which works really well with my Sonos system. So if anyone has a Sonos in their house, it works really well with that. If uh, if you thought, well, I want to walk around the house or do housework and listen to uh, the podcast, which I suggest you do, <laughs> because it is a wicked podcast and definitely better than music that you want to listen to. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, if you want to make sure that you don't miss out anything that we're up to, because as a lot of you will know, we also have a film series out. As Daryl said, we're going to Norway. We're going to be having blog posts up and more information on our website, along with a shop that we have running. And also, there we are going to be running two wilderness hunts this season between October and February. All of that information is on the website, which is thepacebrothers.com. Yep. Visit it. Everything is there. Visit the shop. Money towards conservation. You also get some really cool stuff. We're doing pre-orders for T-shirts, DVDs. There's also more stuff coming out later this year. Uh, mugs and we're also... Gonna, some kit as well. Some kit as well. Kit. But everything we sell on there we're only selling because we you want to use it either we made it like e- the either designs. we made the design or we use it we'll we'll never ever ever put anything up that we would not use Personally. ourselves or have tested ourselves yeah. because we don't want people buying rubbish no we at don't the, <laughs> the end of the day this podcast is made possible by the support of the scottish association for country sports as we always say for the most in up-to-date information about what is going on in the countryside and everything that that affects people who enjoy spending time in the countryside from fishing to hunting to working with dogs go check out their facebook page because they might have a couple of bits of information coming out every day depending on what's going on so that's the, the easiest way to keep the most up to date and we have some exciting news we will be at the northern shooting show next year we've already already organized this we're going to be working with the guys from the the northern shooting show to bring you something special when we're there 
So, yeah, keep an eye out for keep that. Keep an eye out for that. Pre-order your tickets right now because they're cheaper right now if you uh, oh, pre-order yes, your tickets. So, Northern it was a great show, show next year. year. We really enjoyed it. It was the first show that we um, did yeah. that we, no well it was the first show that Northern Shooting Show had done oh yes yeah. uh, this year they now have a new 12 billion pound ex- exhibition centre that is going to be part of the show it's going to be even bigger this year it's going to be better this year and we're going to be there I imagine Saks will be there as well they yes. were there last year so some exciting things ahead more information coming and you should be able to get some of the stuff that we're selling in our shop at the show next year as well as well as get to see some of our adventures that we've been up to in Norway Absolutely. Thanks very much for listening. We'll catch up with you again in two weeks' time.